So we are in the book of Ephesians. No surprise there, right? Been there for a while. But let me give you some things here real quick. What we're going to look at today is going to be the what. Here's what ought to be going on. Or here's what things are. It's going to be way more informative. But after that, we're going to talk about the how. And I don't know about you, but when somebody talks to me about the what, here's what should be going on. Here's what it needs to look like. The question we usually have is, well, how do I get there? How do I make that happen? And that won't be until next Sunday. We don't have as much time. I actually was going to do all of this in one sermon, and then I recognized as I was going through, it's actually three sermons, okay? So yes, I'm a person of mercy. Don't worry. Um, But then when we get to verses 14, 15, and 16, we're going to talk about why does it matter? Why has God set up the church the way that he has? How does he go about leading the church in the way it ought to go? And why does it matter when we think about the church's place in the world? After that, we actually move into a new section. So let's refresh just real quick about the structure of Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are doctrine, teaching. Here's what you just need to know about God. Here's what you need to know about what God's done for you. Here's what you need to know about how much he loves you, how much he cares. Here's what you need to know about how much he's blessed you. And what you find is, is if we will just hunker down, ponder, meditate on, saturate on, get alone with these truths of God, all of a sudden we find that many things that we call insecurity, fear, depression, those types of things, anger, quickly go out the window. Why? Because life is much bigger than self. And everything that God has done is much bigger than me. And all of a sudden I find that the things that I might consider daunting to God, they're a flash in the pan. The reason why I consider them daunting is because I'm only looking at them from my experience, from my perspective. I'm not recognizing that God has already overwhelmingly conquered in my stead and has therefore poured over onto me the ability to be more than a conqueror in these things as well. Let me just give you a for instance of this real quick. If you were to take your Bible and look at just Ephesians 1. Look at verse 13 real quick. 13 and 14. It's a good little thing. It emphasizes His work through the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit has done. Look what it says. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, hearing the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, and what happens when we hear it? You now have the opportunity to respond by believing. Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a sealed person. Now, not or, 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 not a seal. You're sealed. Which if you've ever put anything in a Ziploc bag that had a particular fragrance to it and put it in the refrigerator, you were thankful to God that it was sealed. Why? So that all your food doesn't taste like Chinese food. That's the reason why. Anybody ever done that? Leave takeout in your fridge? Yeah, those paper bags don't do it, man. Seal that personal problem. Anyway, having sealed, having been sealed, that's a fantastic thing. Why does it matter? Watch what it says, verse 14. He was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit deposited in you 
and me is a way that God sealed us and to a time in the future of which he would call us up unto himself. We call this the rapture and we will be with him forever. In other words, he's putting the spirit forward saying, I'm guaranteeing your future forever. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm feeling down in the dumps and really upset about myself, if I would just call a spiritual timeout and meditate on these two verses, the profound love of God is just going to stream off the page and overflow my heart. My mind and my attitude and my emotions get completely changed by the truths of the Word of God. That's what doctrine is supposed to do. Doctrine is truth about all things. If God has spoken about it, He's telling you the truth about it. And in doing so, it is meant to not just be held by us or affirmed by us, or, yeah, I think that's true, or that sounds really great for you, but I don't know if it's true for me. None of that postmodern garbage. It's the idea that when God has spoken, He's spoken. And when He speaks, He doesn't stutter. He means it. And so when He does that, He means to affect His people. So now our thinking needs to be changed. So he does that. What are our privileges? What is our position? And what is his plan for everything? Guess what? He loves having us as a part of it. That's why he makes the offer of salvation available to everyone. And that's why Christ tasted death for every person. But then when we get into chapter four, we're talking about our practice right now. Just verses one through 16. So when we hit verse 17, we're actually moving into the glorious prescription. We're going to see that God is going to get out of his white coat, a little white pad, and he's going to begin writing us things that he desires us to take two of those and call him every morning, every morning, a prescription for every area of our life of how to change us so that we will now walk in a manner that is truly worthy of everything that he's done. And then at the very end, we will get into the glorious protection. All of this is how we live life. And it is a result of the truth that we have not just received or acknowledged, but embrace. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So let's start in chapter four, verse one, just get a running start. We've covered this, but we want to make sure that we got the idea of unity firm in our noggins. So here we go. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's everything in chapters one, two, and three. With all humility, notice the attitude, and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But... To each one of us, individually, grace was giving according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that is the Holy Spirit. So we all have spiritual gifts that have been given to us, even though we're completely unified. So remember this, being unified does not mean that we all have to be rank and file with one another. We all need to look the same, that type of idea. This is not a everybody wear a uniform type of deal. There's much freedom to be had in Christ, but it is Christ that unites us, and that is the common bond that we have. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, because he is the victor, he led captive a host of captive captives and he gave gifts to men. So when he had this triumphal procession after his crucifixion and resurrection, he now has the ability to rob the enemy rightly and redistribute the spoils to his church, to his people. Why? 
Nothing we deserved. It's just the fact that God is endlessly gracious. So it says here, now this expression, he ascended. There we go. What does it mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And we know this when we see such phrases as, because to him was given a name that is above all names. In other words, Christ has shown himself to be preeminent beyond anything that we understand, seen or unseen, physical or supernatural. It doesn't matter because of the work that he's done. And so what are these great spoils that he has done? This is not a prideful sermon. Please understand this. But he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we're going to find out about this real quick. They are separates, but also you cannot be a pastor if you're not a teacher. That's important to know. So here's what we're going to do. If you're taking notes or whatever, we're going to break each one of these down so we understand. These gifts are not spiritual gifts like we see prophecy. If you pick some of these, we have more of these available out there. The answer sheets and the booklets, you need to take them both together. They both work together. What you find out in here, you'll need to record here, and you'll get your results there. It's a real simple process, but I want to make sure that if you walk off with just this, you're going to be really confused at the end, okay? So get both of these. But it's not necessarily a situation of you have the gift of leading or mercy or knowledge or those types of things. We all have those things, and those are mentioned in other parts of the Word. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, that type of thing. That, that's all wonderful. But what he's actually getting here is with the church, by and large, there were offices that he decided he would fill with people who had these spiritual gifts. And so notice there are five that are listed here. The first one is apostles. What is an apostle? In the Greek, it's apostolos is the name. And number one, it was used of an envoy of ships that were sent out. That was the idea of being sent out on a mission. But Jesus uses it as messengers. Now, not everybody who's qualified as an apostle in Scripture is considered an apostle as we understand the 12 apostles who spent the most time with Jesus. For instance, Titus. We have a book named after him. Paul wrote to him. He was a pastor on the island of Crete. It's a pretty rough situation. So Paul writes to him and encourages him in his pastoring in that situation. But Titus is called an apostle in 2 Corinthians 8. Epaphroditus is called an apostle in Philippians 2. We understand the 12 they were actually set aside for the purpose of mission to walk with Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. But also one other interesting thing is that Christ himself is called an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, look, with, look at that with me real quick. Because this gives us an indicator of exactly how this word should be understood. Hebrews chapter 3. Just turn over to the right a little bit. Page 342 if you were curious. Just kidding. <clears throat> Look at Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, writing to believers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The idea of an apostle is a messenger 
Or we might say it this way. One who is sent. Who sent Jesus? The Father. In fact, there was a particular marked point in time where God had not been in communication with anyone for 400 years. And then he decided to move the ball of prophecy forward and started to pave the way for the Messiah to show up. He sent Christ in the likeness of human flesh in order to minister in the flesh amongst us and die for our sins. He was very much a messenger because he was very much carrying God's message. Again, this is a reason why we see such things as, I didn't come to do my will, I came to do the will of the Father who sent me. Exactly. So just real quick for the context of Hebrews, when you're dealing with this, you're dealing with Christians who are thinking about shrinking back from their faith because they're suffering persecution and they've about had it. They're ready to give up and be done with it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, man, don't do that. Look to Christ. Look to Christ here on this situation. Get a glimpse of him. You won't be so willing to give up. So the idea of apostle is one who is sent. Now, a good passage to look at that helps us understand the roles, not just of apostle, but also prophets. We'll deal with that in just a second, but they're coupled together. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God is appointed in the church. So we're talking about church age truth. First... Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, real quick, that's leading, that's not just you're highly organized and love telling other people what to do, that's not what that is, okay, and various kinds of tongues. Now, from what we can gather in the Bible, we have to ask the question, what constitutes an apostle. The number one thing is the fact that if you look through the Bible, you find out that they have actually been commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus. There is a situation that went on in their life to where to be considered as an apostle, Christ, post-raising, has addressed them in some way. Now we know after his resurrection, you look at Matthew chapter 28, Remember, he called everybody together. He said, go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Everybody remember that? Baptizing in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. Everybody remember that? Okay. You can actually compare that account with what Paul recalls in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, and he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Now, here's what that tells me. In a general sense, in a generic sense, there are at least 500 apostles that were running around based on just this criteria. Number two, they were witnesses of his resurrection. How do you know that? Because when they boiled it down in Acts to try to find somebody to replace Judas, they gave a specific criteria. Let's turn there real quick. I wasn't for sure what passages we go to, but go to Acts 1. Acts chapter 1, just right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 1, I might not have all the scripture up here that we're going to go through, but I wasn't sure I was going to do that, but I want to show you this real quick. Acts chapter 1, look at verses 21 and 22. They're talking about another taking the place of Judas, and it says, therefore, it is necessary. Does that sound important? Sounds essential. It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, and out among us, so his earthly ministry, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, his ascension. 
One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now notice, interesting things. Number one, the time marker starts with Christ's baptism. Number two, it ends with the fact of his ascension that we find out at the beginning of this chapter in this exact same book. But what else is interesting is notice that the apostles in marking out someone that needs to be chosen for that, they actually state they have to be a witness of the resurrection. They have to be someone who is going to go around and tell them about the fact that yes, Christ was dead, but Christ is very much alive today. So they must be witnesses of his resurrection. Number three is another one that's very interesting. They must have the ability to perform sign gifts of miracles and healings. They have to have that ability. There's no way beyond it. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, Micah read this a little bit ago. It says here in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Acts 2:43. They had the ability to do signs and wonders. Now, Here's the crucial question that we ask. And again, if you differ with me and my understanding of this, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. I still love you. It's, it's totally okay. Not everybody I think has to agree on this. Number one, their purposes are listed as foundational and revelatory. That's important. And why is that? Because the canon of scripture is closed. What's a canon? Is that what a canon is? No, not like that. Notice only one N. You probably thought I was a really bad speller. I don't know. But when you talk about C-A-N-O-N, you're talking about that term is used as a measurement. How you measure how something is. How long was it? When did it begin? When did it end? And as far as I understand, there's been no revelation of God that has been given after the book of Revelation. It's a dangerous thing to say, the Lord told me this. Because if that's the case, then we need to start the book of First Jeremy, and I need to begin writing down everything. Because if I say that God has said it to me, I am now claiming divine inspiration that he has carried me along in something. Now that's concerning, and that's the way that you use the template of the scriptures in order to measure any false teaching that would be out there. The canon is closed. God doesn't have anything else to tell us beyond what his word has to say, or if anything comes about, it is to be measured according to his word. Now, is there anything wrong with you saying, God has impressed upon my spirit that this is what needs to happen? God has been leading me in this direction. No, not at all. Time will out whether God really said that or not, really led you in that way or not. But it's a dangerous thing to put words in God's mouth if you can't back them up with the truth that's already revealed in Scripture. That's concerning. Two things, foundational and revelatory. Watch this. Back what we studied before in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of both of these, apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. They're a foundational ministry that's been put forward. If you move forward into chapter 3, He's talking about the mystery that's been revealed to him. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, remember, that's Old Testament, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
in the Spirit. And that's not talking about Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's talking about church age because it's church age truth about the gospel going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. So notice both of these are not just a foundational role, laying the foundation very much so, but also the idea of this truth being absolutely unfolded and revealed before people before that. So notice, the purposes are foundational and revelatory, but the canon of Scripture is closed. Number two, no successors were ever appointed. Instead, elders were brought forward in order to take over that ministry within the body of Christ. No successors were ever appointed. Before Peter died, he never said, here, you, take this mantle and move it forward. It never happened. John lived longer than all of them. He was probably in his 90s, almost 100 years old. He never stopped for a moment and said, you know what? You take this long pointy hat and put it on yourself and continue forward. Never happened. Can everybody take a joke today? Okay. If you're here and you're Catholic, I love you. Come talk to me after this. Here's probably one of the most interesting ones. The future tells us no. The future tells us that this is not a possibility. Let's find it. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus reveals something in Matthew chapter 19 to the apostles that's incredibly interesting. Verse 28. We could actually look at 27, 28, 29. The subject here is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, having a rich entrance into this kingdom, what it is to have an inheritance, what it is to have reward and treasure in heaven into this kingdom. And look at verse 27 here. I've only got 28 on the board, but 27 is good for context. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Peter, you're a selfish guy. Sit down. No. Look what Jesus says about the apostles. Watch this. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, what in the world is that? When is that? When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Pause. Is that future? Yeah, the kingdom is future. Watch this. So he calls the kingdom to come, the regeneration, and he actually states it because he is going to sit on his royal throne, David's throne, in Jerusalem, and he is going to rule righteously. Look what it says. You also shall sit upon how many thrones? Twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. At a future time, there will only be twelve thrones for you guys. Paul's not going to sit on one of those thrones. I thought he was an apostle. Wasn't he a great apostle? Yes, but he wasn't Matthias. And Matthias was the one who was chosen to replace Judas. So only those 12 are going to sit on those 12 thrones. And because they followed Christ, and because if you trace them through church history, they gave their lives in excruciating ways for the gospel of Christ. You will have the privilege, apostles, 12, to sit on these 12 thrones and your responsibility in the kingdom will to be the judges over the people of Israel. High and lofty calling. Here's another one. Turn over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. If you hit maps, you went too far. By the way, thank you for bringing your paper Bibles. I love that. 
We've gotten away from that. I'm not sure they kill a tree than make a microchip. So have your paper Bibles. You need them, especially if your phone is password protected when the rapture happens. How's anybody going to know what goes on? Yeah, I left a folder in there. They don't have your thumbprint. What's your problem? You know, they can't find your body. You've been raptured. Good grief. Get a paper Bible. Write that stuff out in the beginning. Talking about the new Jerusalem here in Revelation 21. Look what it says in verse 14. And the wall of the city had how many foundation stones? Wow. Have we seen anybody else that's foundational as far as the church is concerned? The apostles and the prophets, right? Well, that's what was brought up in Ephesians 2. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Everybody see that? 12. The future, whether they sit on the 12 thrones during the 1,000 year reign of Christ, or whether the coming of the new Jerusalem states there are only 12. Everybody see I did that? 12. Are we okay? Electronically, are we okay, Mitch? Satan does not want you to hear this. So no, I don't believe there are any apostles today for those reasons. Second key term, prophets, are brought up in our passage. He gave those apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Prophets, one who proclaims inspired utterances on behalf of God. There are two ways that this can be known. The first one is foretelling. is the idea of predicting And it could be future revelation. Here's what's going to happen in the future. Sometimes we know it more like that. But the idea also might be the revelatory role. When you look at that in the New Testament, what was the Bible that everybody in the New Testament used? The Old Testament. Nobody had the New Testament yet. James wasn't written until around 36, 38, or 40 AD. It's the first book that was written in the New Testament. They didn't have that going on. Nobody was passing that around yet. So everything they were pulling from was Old Testament. Well, when you had prophets of the church age, they're speaking that forward. Now, just think of what you know about the 12 apostles. Matthew wrote, yes, tax collector. He wrote the book of Matthew. John wrote, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Who else do you have? Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter. And he's also believed to be the source material that Mark used in order to write is down. So you have the apostles who are bringing these things forward of serving very much as apostles, but also having a role of prophet and being given the word of God and being carried by the word of God to bring those things forward and to unfold them. So there's a foretelling that goes on, but also, and this is my business right here, forthtelling. Forthtelling is what I'm about, proclaiming and expounding revealed truth. So if we're talking about if prophets are valid today, not in the idea that there's more that needs to be added to the word of God, that's called anyone, 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 a cult. That's what that's called. Anybody wants to bring something and says, well, God told me this, you're drinking Kool-Aid with David Koresh somewhere down south. It's not good. And I know Jim Jones and I'm mixing it all up for funsies. Okay. So anyway, stick with me. Proclaiming. It's not the idea of predicting in the future. Now, if we want to say, you know what? The legacy of the apostles live on in the scriptures. Amen. Praise God. Not going to dispute that whatsoever. But as far as anything being about a brand new revelation is given, we don't see that. Now, so we move on. Covered this. Covered this. How about evangelists? I have such problems saying this. Uangelistes in the Greek. Does that sound good, Mary? Thank you. Awesome. I love it. If it wasn't, she would let me know. Trust me. 
It's very simpler, somebody who proclaims the gospel. It's somebody who the gospel is at the center of their heart and it's got to be shared. Early usage would suggest that this was often a person who went from place to place announcing the good news, somebody who's traveling. We've rarely seen somebody in our lifetimes more recently, some of you youngins probably don't remember this, but Billy Graham. Billy Graham is probably the most famous evangelist that we know of that actually had that gift. We had the privilege, my wife and I, of visiting Billy Graham's museum in North Carolina at a place called The Cove. And if you go down into the museum that they have, they have one of those large panoramic shots. It's about 10 feet tall, and it's probably about 35 feet wide. And it's him at his traveling pulpit on a stage with his hands outstretched. And there are a million people in Czechoslovakia who have gathered to see him. And as far as you can see, it's just people. That is something that we've never seen before. Here's the crazy thing about that as well. All of those who heard the gospel and didn't respond are going to be held accountable because they know. Think about that. It's not the evangelist's job to convert people. Only Jesus can do that. It is the evangelist's job to tell people. So, good quote here by Walford. The gift of evangelism mentioned in Ephesians 4.11 refers to the unusual capacity to preach the gospel of salvation and to win the lost to Christ. That's who he is. For 40 years, you guys had a rabid evangelist on your hands. While every Christian should be a channel of information to others and should do the work of an evangelist as Timothy was instructed to do, we're all responsible for sharing the gospel, yes? The, the idea to go make disciples is for all of us. Nonetheless, some will be more effective in sharing the gospel than others. Why? Because they have that gifting, that office of evangelists. They might be someone who has the spiritual gift of mercy and knowledge or wisdom and leading, but the gift office that God has called them to is that of evangelist. Here's a question that we need to ask. And when we covered this a few years ago, I asked it then too, and I brought it up also in my um, interview process with the church to come here and be the pastor. We need to think about, we need to pray about, and we need to be very aware, spirit-led, as far as who is the evangelist in our midst. Very much sharing the gospel, yes, but who has been given the special capacity of which to fulfill that office of sharing the gospel most effectively by the Spirit's use with people? It might be you and you've never considered it before. Say, so, well, isn't that your job? Isn't that the reason that we hired you? Come next week. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. A pastor is one who herds sheep. One who herds sheep. That's not a derogatory term. Okay? But one who serves as a guardian or a leader. One who is responsible for the care and guidance of a Christian con congregation. In fact, I would put this in here. Soul care. That is the pastor's business. The pastor's business is to recognize error. The pastor's business is to sit down and to listen. The pastor's business is not to drive sheep. No shepherd ever did a good job driving sheep. The pastor's job is to lead sheep. God's goal for us is rarely to take us where we want to go. 
It is always to lead us in a pasture that draws us closer to him. It is my calling to be able to discern that. And if you come to me to want to talk, it's not always a hallmark moment. In fact, rarely is it. Not am I here to be harsh or brash or to beat you in the head. But what my job is to do is to recognize wrong and sin and to encourage you to bring it to light so that you can confess it, repent it, and move on from it because it is hindering you from growing in the Lord. And if the Lord wants anything, He wants fully mature disciples in Christ. Do I always handle that the best way? Good grief, I hope I do. I hope. But I might not. And if that's the case for you, you have my sincerest apologies. But we can never apologize over what the Word of God says, and we don't feed on anything else as sheep but God's Word. There is no other food out there. That's important. So that's what pastors are given for. And pastors have to be teachers. They have to be ones who provide instruction. Everybody's got to have their spinach. It's important. Some of it we like, depends on how it's cooked. Some of it we don't like, because maybe it wasn't cooked. I don't know. The one who shepherds God's flock is also a teacher of the Word, having both the gifts of shepherding and teaching the flock. God's ideal pastor is one who engages in a didactic ministry, feeding the saints on expository preaching, giving them the rich food of the Word. In fact, I would say this is that if you show up in a congregation and a pastor doesn't have this, turn around and go ahead and go to Ponderosa. You're going to get better fed there than you will at that church. This is where churches are going. You might say, well, I don't know anything about that. That's because you go here. But recognize that some of the places where your friends go, it's a clever homily, it's a poem, it's that back page article in Reader's Digest that they thought would really scratch the fuzzies of some people that came to show up. And as long as it attracts people, and as long as it brings in money, a lot of pastors don't care. That's a dangerous thing. Let me show you this real quick. This is important. Go to 2 Timothy. Turn to the left. If you're still in Revelation, go to 2 Timothy. And I just want to read this. I don't want to expound too much on it. It's actually what expository preaching is, is expounding upon the Word of God. So for me to not say that is really contradictory to what I just shared with you. But I just want you to get it in your mind because this is Paul writing his last will and testament to Timothy, bringing up the most important things. And here's what he says. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 16. All Scripture, what you actually hold in your hands, paper or otherwise, is inspired by God and is profitable. It means it is not a waste. It's going to benefit you something. It's useful. For teaching, for reproof, that hurts. For correction, that hurts and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We're going to bring that up again next week. That's what the Bible is for. And it is my job to take the only meal that God has given us 
and hopefully present it before you to where it is digestible. And if for some reason we're gagging on it, we need to figure out why we're gagging on it or throwing it up so that we can sort it out because this is what Christians eat. And this is why he says, with no chapter break in the original, chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season when they like it, and out of season when y'all don't like it. The mission doesn't change. You guys wonder sometimes why I'm yelling. I'm not. I'm preaching. That's what it is. And you can guarantee that if I'm banging the pulpit, it's because I feel like my point fell flat. Know how I work. Moving on. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove. People don't like that. Rebuke. People really don't like that. And exhort. People like that a little bit. With great patience, that hurts me. And instruction. But that's not hard. Why? Because the instruction comes from the same place. In fact, if it's a good translation, your translation is going to say the same thing that my translation says. And so whenever you find yourself, I'm so mad at the pastor for what they... Did I tell you something that wasn't in God's word? If that's the case, you're not really mad at me. You're mad at God. And what I love is that God deals with you being upset with him a lot better than I do. Because he's right and I'm wrong. He's right and you're wrong. He's always right. And so it's no longer me trying to manipulate the word of God to make it say what I think it ought to say or a situation I was talking about with somebody earlier. This great famous pastor said this, that great famous pastor teaches jacked up stuff. Stop listening to him. We can easily look at the word of God and see holes all throughout his ministry. Stop it. Stop the elevation of personalities. Stop caring about what people say and ask the question, what does God say? What does God say? Always bring it back to the word. If it doesn't come back to the word, that person is living in a delusion. And this is hard because we like fun stories. Ever tell you guys about when I used to be a youth pastor? Oh man, I was the worst youth pastor ever. Dude, I don't just make Zach look good. I make him look so good. I do, man. And why is that? When I went through my interview process, I said, you know, I'm not really a games person. Oh, that's okay. Lying parents. Parents, tell your youth pastor the truth. And then what happens? I took the job because I wanted to teach the Word of God to these kids. They were mad at me because they didn't play games. I was refusing to melt a chocolate bar in a diaper and make kids eat it. That's where we were. I mean, that says there's something severely wrong with that church, doesn't it? Oh, you got that question wrong. Here, eat this. What? Anyway, terrible youth pastor. Because we wouldn't play around. Because it's about God's word. I apologize if you don't always feel welcome, but if it's because God's word was preached, so be it. I apologize if I didn't say things. Man, I left here just really uplifted today. I'm so thankful but there might be some Sundays where you don't. So recognize the calling is not to uplift you. And the calling is not to tear you down. The calling is to tell you the word of God. 
And then pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to light in your heart where it is out of sync. Where maybe you're subscribing to your own agenda and not God's agenda. And change. That's what God desires. That being said, let's go back to Ephesians 4. Now I ask you to do that while you're there. Take a look at some of the evidences of the early church. I mean, one, one good thing you know that if you want to stay true to the purposes of God, how'd they do it in the beginning? You start out there, you find that people regularly go wrong or, or, or regularly are right. They don't go wrong very easily. How did they do it in the beginning? Just give you a couple for note-taking, but watch what it says. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the very first thing they bring up is the apostles' teaching. Now, pause real quick. We brought up Acts, or sorry, Matthew 28 earlier. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does that tell you? Everything that the apostles had to say was Jesus approved. That's what it tells you. Everything that was going on in the very first thing that was considered a foundational cornerstone of the ministry of the first church. 3,000 people in one day, y'all. Think about that. So you better have your words right from the beginning. The apostles teaching. What else went with that? Fellowship, hanging out together in the Lord, not hanging out together. Hanging out together in the Lord. Breaking bread, a regular time of reflection for communion and remembering his death and resurrection for us. And also prayer, spending regular time individually or together seeking the Lord's face and laying our requests before him. These are the four things that, that founded that. If we get past these four things, we've done it wrong. You want to measure a church real good? You're going to visit, you're on vacation or whatever. You decide to leave here and go somewhere else. When you walk in the door, that's the finger that you hold up to see which way the wind blows. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Are those things valued in this congregation? If they're not, it's time to leave. It's time to find another place. How about this? Later on in Acts, as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed. Because why? They're teaching the people and proclaiming, that means they had some volume behind it, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine being greatly disturbed because somebody's teaching and proclaiming about Jesus and his resurrection? Unnerved. For us, it's so common, it's almost grown dull when we hear that. We kind of have passive ears when we have that. But notice, for them, good grief, this is just striking that we can't let this continue on. Somebody bring some order to this place. <laughs> those kind of guys, right? We love those guys. Acts chapter 5. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. And this is after they'd gotten beaten up for sharing the gospel. We'll teach you to preach. Okay? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now guys, let me say this. And I'm not trying to be a doomsday person. I very much believe that in America, we're going to get persecuted for our faith. It's coming. It's creeping. I just watched a video last week of Mounties showing up at a house church. And they got off their horses and they strolled on up and they called the pastor out and they arrested him in Canada. Arrested, why? Because he was having a house meeting in his home that's centered around the Bible because they're under a COVID restriction, right? 
I love that a, that a church would be so in love with Jesus and his word and recognize the value of meeting together that if that ever happened, we could very respectfully and in a very holy and dignified way when they come knocking on our door say, that's what I'm looking forward to. Why? Because the Lord said meet together. The Lord said you need fellowship with one another. We need to be under the teaching of God's word. And the Lord saying it is over and above anything that anybody on this world would say. So we got to be willing to pay the cost. Now, suffering a beating does not sound like fun. But this tells me that there's something indescribable about joy to be had. Knowing that you were beaten for righteous reasons. And they were rejoicing. You know what that tells me? Cartwheels down the aisle, glory fan out. Woo! We could all stand to have some black church, don't play. So notice here. Considered it worthy to suffer shame for the name. They know how to worship the Lord. And every day, every day, you guys think you got it hard with me. Every day in the temple and from house to house. Can you imagine me making rounds at your house? <laughs> Honey, turn off the lights. He's here again. <laughs> like slowly drawing shades. I'm like, aha. Don't tell me I don't know my calling. I do. <laughs> Notice what it says. Even though they got beat over there, even though they're rejoicing, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. It didn't stop their message. Why? Because the command was to preach the message, to tell the people. This is what they were founded in, and this is what we need to be careful to be founded in. Ephesians 4, if you wouldn't mind a look, moving on past this verse. And this is just like a little foretaste moment for what we're dealing with. Notice the reason why these offices are there are for this reason. For the equipping. And just to let you know, we're spending all next Sunday just on this word. What does this mean? How is this done in the church? For the equipping of the saints. For the work of service. And if the equipping of the saints in the service work begins to happen, it gives way to the building up of the body of Christ. How is the church built up? It's not necessarily by me being an eloquent speaker, obviously. What it is built up is by taking the Word of God, embracing and operating out of the conviction of the Word of God, and began to serve as doing the work of the Word of God, and all of a sudden, the Spirit starts to move in the church and everybody starts to get real excited about it real quick. Am I saying we run off of emotion? No. I'm saying that emotion and experience that is of a holy nature is going to spring out of the application of the Word of God. That's where it comes from. is by actually putting feet on what Jesus has to tell us. So you may have remembered this from our Spiritual Gifts series, if you remember that series. This is a great depiction. This is from Chuck Swindoll's Spiritual Gifts booklet. But down here we have Jesus Christ as the foundation, but he built it upon the apostles and the prophets. And the church is set up with evangelists, pastor teachers, all pastors need to be teachers, and also teachers 
who, and notice all five of those are communication gifts. Does everybody see that? All of those consider themselves with the subject of, of chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesians. They're supposed, to, they're supposed to impart doctrine. For what reason? To equip the saints who do the work of the ministry, work of service, and build up the body. This is a really good way, a really good visual to see this. Now, I want to explain to you why this is so important. I want you to think with me real quick, especially in this area with some of the denominationalism that goes on. Uh, true to the word of God or otherwise. This is a great quote. It's long, but stick with me. The idea of Christians serving each other by means of their spiritual gifts, however, has not always been recognized. For a thousand years before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic clergy viewed themselves as God's priests, intermediaries between God and humans. Now stop. Who is the mediator between God and humans? Jesus Christ alone, period. So that's a big red flag right there. One of the doctrines the Reformers championed was the priesthood of all believers. We talked a little bit about this before we jumped into spiritual gifts because it was important. Do you realize that if you're a believer, you're also a priest unto God? You have certain spiritual sacrifices that you offer to Him. He has elevated you from lost and without hope to not just being His child, not just being given every spiritual gift, not just eternally secure, not just having the indwelling Holy Spirit, but He's actually made you, spiritually speaking, a priest because you are a believer. This means that you have the ability to read the Word of God and apply it for yourself. You don't necessarily need somebody to come in and to bridge that gap because Jesus does that. So notice it says here, yet, they did not give much attention to the tools God gives believers for ministering for Him. Pause. Can you effectively serve God in your flesh? No. That's why you need to understand and know spiritual gifts. That's why we painstakingly went through this already refined study to try to make it understandable for everybody so that you could at least, again, it's not foolproof, but to get a glimpse of what your spiritual gifts might be so that you will begin understanding how to serve in the body of Christ. So it says here, the Roman Catholic priest did almost everything for the people. He read the Bible for them. He prayed for them. He did everything in the church for the people instead of getting them involved. However, the scriptures do not suggest that only the clergy are to engage in ministry. Instead, the Bible indicates that all the saints, all believers are to be engaged in the work of the ministry. Just as every part of the human body contributes to its growth, so all believers are to be equipped by spiritually gifted leaders. Then, as the Lord's followers are engaged in the work of ministry, the body of Christ is edified and believers become spiritually mature. This helps us see how spiritual gifting is related to sanctification, salvation. Now let me say this real quick. Let's, let's try to apply this. How do you know that you're growing? One of the greatest ways that you know you're growing is not because you've got 12 Bethmore Bible studies under your belt. That's not it. It's not the idea, well, I'm involved here, I'm involved here, I'm involved here, I'm involved here. One of the greatest guises that Satan would love to deceive the church in is to get us involved in everything that was humanly possible every night of the week in the church building. What's your first ministry? Family. Your very first ministry is your family. Your spouse that you're with, your kids that you're with, whatever it is, that is the first means of imparting truth 
being centered around Christ himself, having his word readily available or on the tips of our tongues and communicating and existing for the purpose of developing one another and, 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 and challenging one another and growing in the Lord. You're very much part of the church, but God is never asking you to sacrifice your first ministry so that you can be more involved in your second ministry. But be involved in your second ministry as the Lord has led you to do that. Be here. Get involved in men's group. Get involved in women's coffee. Whatever. Get involved in Wednesday night. Absolutely. Those are ways you can tell, engage, whether or not you're growing. Is the Word of God the center of what I want to do? Am I applying it to my first ministry? And am I also obeying Jesus by getting involved in my local church? That's a really good gauge for it. It's, if we think that spiritual growth is just, well, I sit down and I went through this study and I went through this study, went through this study, then great. Let's ask some questions about what you learned in that study. And if your pockets are empty and with lint pouring out after it's done with, you're not growing. A full head, trust me, guys, I speak from incredible experience. A full head matters nothing to the Lord if you don't have a submissive heart. And the Bible was never given to make us fat-headed. Never. It was meant to change us into the image of His perfect Son. So maybe a good litmus test is to pray through and ask the questions, Lord, am I growing? Am I seeking to impact my family with the Word of God? Are you the center of how we communicate with one another? Am I pointing my family to Christ every time? Am I involved in my church, growing in my understanding of God's Word so that I can apply it and have effective ministry going on right now? Think about this, guys. I don't want to pick on anybody, so I'm going to speak in real generalities. In fact, I don't know when I say this, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and just bring it out because it's on my heart. Think about whether or not you're scared to death to share the gospel with somebody. Some of us are introverted. I understand that. God loves introverts. He does. In fact, introverts are usually some of the greatest praying people that we know. They can pray the dickens off of somebody. They really can. It's the idea of being that extroverted person that seems to gravitate a little bit more towards actively looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And that's okay as well. But think about it. If we're actually in fear of sharing the very message that once somebody hears it, God can bring them from death eternal unto life eternal. We might want to have some focused prayer time with the Lord over removing that fear. Because something has become more important than the truth. My reputation. I don't want people to look at me weird. I don't want people to make fun of me. Well, I'm scared of what people might say. Well, they might ask a question I don't know the answer to. All those are possibilities. But recognize that all those are me-focused concerns. They all have self at the center. And self is not spirit, self is flesh. Now again, I'm not here to come down on you. I'm not here to rebuke you and reprove you, but I guess I kind of am. So I take back everything I said. What's wrong with y'all? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but think about it real quick. Isn't the gospel important? Isn't it essential? Isn't the gospel reason why you're here today? Somebody got beyond that fear and shared it with you. Somebody got beyond their fear and shared it with Billy Graham. I'm excited to meet that guy. 
When we get to heaven, I want to walk right past Billy and be like, where's your Sunday school teacher? Because that's the guy who shared the life-saving message of the cross and resurrection of Christ with him. And God used that seed to burn his heart inside out to where he had to proclaim. Watch an old Billy Graham clip sometime. Watch the spit come off of his mouth and hit the pulpit while he's out there. Why? Because he's dirty and gross? No, because he's passionate about the gospel and he wants to see people saved. I'll tell you this. There's not anything greater in this life than knowing that we were bearers of God's message to bring people to Christ. And this is the reason why I, pe- why I preach, why I teach, why I'm the pastor, is to give you the tools necessary so that you can do the work of the ministry. That doesn't exempt me. It holds me up as a model that I need to be modeling it for you of how to share the gospel. But guess what? God wants you doing it too. God wants you discipling too. God wants you involved in teaching three-year-olds too. God wants you involved in teaching 53-year-olds too. And 93-year-olds too. He wants everybody involved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the ministry of the church. Thank you for how you've set it up, divinely speaking. You have a process. You have a procedure. You give us the means by which change and truth happen. And in the body of Christ, that is special gifted offices of which to equip people, of which the saints would be thoroughly outfitted for the mission before them. Lord, let us not forget that we're in the midst of a war. So Father, in this time, I pray, please move upon our hearts, convicting us where we need it, reassuring us where we need it, providing hope, and also providing reproof where we need it. Answering the question, are we growing spiritually? Are we ministering to our family first? Is Christ the center of all that we desire to communicate? Are we embracing the Word of God as the truth that it truly is? Are we understanding that it is the divinely inspired authority that has the right to tell us how to live and how not to live because You are the moral center of all existence? Our age has a great problem with that. Lord, we need to get beyond our age and get alone with You. So Father, please minister to our hearts in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.